Welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week we are joined by former governor and U.S. now U.S. Senator Independent Angus King. Remember, we take your questions each episode, so write in to politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. Also, please check out the link to this week's sponsor, our old favorite Magic Spoon, in the show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Okay, James, we're not going to whitewash it. Tuesday's election for Democrats, debacle, drubbing, devastating. You pick your term. It was awful. The GOP swept not just the governor's race, but everything in Virginia came close in New Jersey, and there were other places that were supposed to be Democratic strongholds. These are blue states. It was worse than 2009. Now, let me give you my quick lessons, and then I really want to draw on your expertise. Democrats don't have the luxury of division, dysfunction. The left wing needs to realize the country ain't there. Defund the police rejected by Minneapolis voters. Buffalo defeats a socialist mayor candidate. I'm sorry, they are more of a problem now than, than an asset for Democrats if they keep talking so much. And for the, both the left and the centrist, the biggest mistake would be for Congress not to quickly pass this infrastructure bill and the one to invest in health care, education, climate, and so forth. What's in those bills? Not the size or what was left out of concerns about the deficits. Those still should be winning issues. And Democrats also, James, though, need to address inflammatory issues. You and I know that the critical race theory is used by Youngkin and others is bullshit. It's not taught in schools. But I'm sorry. It's on voters' mind. You have to figure out how you address it. You talk about the stain of slavery without saying white people are all racist or whatever. And the same thing with parents in school. I guess the final point I would make, however, for Republicans, those of you who think you're in the post-Trump era, you're living in a different world. Uh, I don't know what deal Jeff Rowe, Youngkin's campaign manager, cut with Donald Trump, but the idea that Youngkin ran away from Donald Trump, which is a narrative that some of them are trying to spin, is just nonsense. He's going to be a centerpiece uh, of that campaign next year in 2024, and uh, the orange criminal is still with us, and uh, he didn't hurt Republicans yesterday. We'll see what happens ahead. James, your take. Well, it, first of all, there is one interpretation of what happened on Tuesday, and that is wokeism is an anvil around the neck of every Democrat. Right. Phil Murphy, Terry McAuliffe, most unwoke, hardworking people you can imagine. And what, what this does, it, it, it attacks your immune system. And, you know, if they would do a simple thing, like, Introduce a bill to say we're not taking Abraham's Lincoln's name, image, or likeness off of anything. All right? Period. And, and sometimes it, it and this permeated everywhere. It permeated the Buffalo mayor's race. Guy lost. He's a write-in candidate. It looks like he's going to win decisively. They got killed in Long Island. They got killed in Minneapolis. It looks like Seattle is going to elect a Republican. She's city attorney. She kind of said, I'm not really a Republican, but she ran autonomous zones. Who thinks of this idiotic shit? All right? Who who comes up with this? And I, I, I got to tell you, it, 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 it was decisive. It was clear. We know exactly why it happened. And the question is, 
where do we go? You know, when, when a, it, it, most of the Democratic Party are very sane people, right? When are we going to do something to have the 12% of us define us? And when is somebody going to tell these people, just stand down, all right? You, 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 people don't like you. You're not popular. They can't stand you. And I think that people didn't have any other way but voting to express the way that they felt. And I'm sorry, the strategy of of telling two-thirds of the people in the United States that they're rotten, racist, irredeemable people is probably not a good way to win an election. I don't think it is. It, It kind of proved to be not such a good way to win an election. So that, that, that's my simple view. Well, I'm in total agreement with that simple view, uh, which is not simple. It really is, uh, I think, uh, quite perceptive. Um, but Democrats have to also realize the way these issues come up. The critical race theory is a perfect example. It is, as I said, BS. It's not taught in any Virginia schools or maybe some instruction manual in Loudoun County that puts out propaganda, but it's phony. But what Democrats have to do is not just say it's BS, not just say it's phony. They have to take it on and delineate between the stain and pain of slavery, uh, which ought to be taught in the schools, but say, wait, and the treatment of Native Americans. But wait a minute, some left-wing claims that we're all white racist and the country has made no progress, that's utter, complete nonsense. And anyone who teaches that in the schools, I'm against. Uh, And I think the same thing with with parents and school courses. Yeah, you know, of course, Terry McAuliffe was right, but he was slow to pick up on that unfair attack. And it's bogus, uh, targeting beloved, but merely saying that isn't sufficient. You have to take them on. Well, I, I got a little bit of a different view. What okay. I think this stuff does is it, it lowers your political autoimmune system. So, of course, Terry doesn't believe that. But, but when you, people hear defund the police, Okay, when people hear autonomous zones, when people hear about taking Abraham Lincoln's name off of schools, then they're, they, they, they hear something else and they're kind of willing to believe it. All right, but because some of the stuff that comes out of this people are so asinine, it just, it, it, like, like I said, it, it makes you, and of course you could, you could take it on, but you shouldn't have to, they make us just, susceptible to the slightest infection that you can have. And, you know, it's not just the people that watch Fox that don't like this. It's the people that read Fox don't like this. And they just couldn't be clearer, could not be clearer. And hopefully, you know, we we get some of this stuff through and hopefully the virus continues to improve. And, uh, you know, I, I still... I think this is a, a real warning for 2022. I think the non-Looney 88% of the Democratic Party has got a, a, a real chance to to tell these people exactly what they think and how much damage they're causing. And, and so everybody knows what the message from this election is. I don't know if the 12% get it, but they better learn it. Well, yeah. Their people are getting killed. Yeah, you're absolutely right. But, you know, it, it was a really bad night. 
as they said, we're soft. not going <laughs> to gloss <laughs> over that. <laughs> there were a few. Uh, there were, were a few rays. There were a few good elements in suburban Milwaukee. A right wing challenge to the school board elections about some of those same issues that were raised in Virginia that was defeated. There was a bunch of conservative uh, uh, initiatives in Colorado that were rejected, and we should celebrate. The diversity of this election, black mayors elected for the first time in Durham, North Carolina, Pittsburgh, second time in New York City. I certainly think she was I wouldn't have voted for, her, but, you know, a black lieutenant governor uh, in Virginia and Asian-American mayors in Boston and Cincinnati. That's something to celebrate. That's not woke. Uh, and I suspect almost all of those elected officials are hardly woke. Uh, and and hopefully they will join in that wake-up call for congressional Democrats uh, because if they if they don't wake up, they deserve to lose in 2022. Well, uh, I, I think that most Democrats are, are woke as to what's going on. Is it, it, will the woke wake up? <laughs> that, that's the question. Will will the woke get woke? And as long as they're out there, you know, jabbing away. And again, this is nothing. If the New York Times had, I thought. A good piece uh, Monday about this entire thing, and basically the make the point is that the people that are all behind this are overeducated white people. But by, by two to one, they want this language more than than non-whites want it. They're trying to force a, a, a way to talk down people's throats that people don't want to talk like that, and. It, it, it is really it, it, it just signals coastal overeducated, you know, looking down on people kind of arrogance. And boy, did we pay for it. And good people paid for this. I mean, Terry McAuliffe is a, is a very good man. He's an unbelievable parent. He's got he and Dorothy have five kids. One of the kids graduated from the Naval Academy. And he was just so susceptible to catching this virus there wasn't much and it didn't really have a lot to do with biden it really didn't have a lot to do with trump y'all could never mention biden's name i never let trump in there they just saw his gift and just sat there and let the gift come to him and and it, 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 this was inflicted by you know 12 percent of the democratic party you know basically ruined it for a lot of really good people yeah, they did, and I think Yunkin is a is a transparent fraud. But he ran a very shrewd campaign, and I thought he played the Trump thing perfectly. They didn't disassociate. They didn't run away from Trump. They just said, "Don't come in here and gin up the base. We'll say we're for you. We'll say we're for your program. We'll say you were a great president and all that." Uh, and it worked. Trump went and made a lot of stuff for him at the end, and then he said, "You know, you know," he brought out. His people. He may have brought out some of his people. Uh, whether it's a model for next time or not, whether others can get away with that, I'm not sure. Yuckin never talked about Biden. Right? Yuckin was just willing to sit by and watch 12% of the Democratic Party take the election with him. Yeah. So go ahead. You, you want to well, pull the pin and you know, let the grenade go off in your face? Fine. I don't have a problem with that. Let me give you – this is a downer, so let's talk about an upper – uh, of Go sorts. Ahead. And that was the World Series. 
Uh, I think the World Series, I didn't, I didn't have uh, a, a team or a dog in that fight. I thought they were two really good teams. I thought it was, a, I wish it would have gone to seven, but I thought it was an interesting series. A couple of thoughts. I really, I felt badly for Dusty Baker because I wanted him to win a World Series. He ought to be in the Hall of Fame, whether he does or not. But you had to love the Braves manager, Brian Snitker. I mean, James, a 45-year veteran with that organization, didn't get to be a manager till he was 60. I mean, it's just a, that's a wonderful story. And Freddie Freeman is one of the admirable people in baseball. And I'll tell you one thing. This is a confession. I used to argue. I had arguments with my son, which you'll find hard to believe. And I'd say, you know, I think home runs are overrated. I think a 240 hitter who hits 33 home runs is not as valuable as a 280 hitter who hits 17. I think I was proven wrong, uh, particularly uh, uh, Tuesday night uh, in, that, uh, in that World Series. If, if Jason Stark doesn't win the Pulitzer Prize, if whatever they have in sports reporting for the piece he wrote today in the, in the Athletic, then they ought to shut the whole thing down. This might be the best piece of sports journalism that I, I've read. It's that good. And that guy is that good. He's, well, he's summarize it for our, for our for our. Well, our, he just went through all of the improbable things that happened with the Braves. And how many people were on the roster in the World Series that didn't were not on the roster at the start oh, of the season? The guy we from Kansas that, City. Yeah. Right. <laughs> we, we forget that, that their best player went down. Who loses yeah. their freaking best? Maybe the best player in the league. Yeah, yeah. Went down. Well, and he Monsoto. just goes through how rarely any of this has happened in history. And I, it was just a magnificent piece of research it was, I don't know how he put it together that fast. It, it was brilliant, and it, it, its observations were just utterly brilliant. And, and, you know, we didn't realize how historical uh, this team was. But it, Jason Stark really does a good job of, of talking about the uniqueness of, of this Atlanta Braves. And that general manager, I, I can't forget his name, he's Canadian guys, obviously some of Greek descent. Uh, what he did is like, Take, take your breath away. It was and genius. they did it all on the fly. They, Poor, August 11th, they were not a 500 team. They weren't. And he, he, picked goes, up, he picked up guys. I think this guy Schuller was hitting below 200 when he picked him up. Uh, and the other thing that they had, which I think every good baseball team now has to have, I hope you're listening, Washington Nationals, you got to have a bullpen, not just a closer. They're bringing in those, those middle-inning relief guys, and they did a great job. Uh, I give the Braves great credit. I think that general manager couldn't even be there last night because he's in, in, in COVID restrictions in Atlanta. But uh, he deserves all the praise you're giving him, James. Yeah, I guess he did. I mean, I think our friend Mike Tackett said that the Braves have seven relievers that are better than the Washington Nationals' best relievers. Well, he actually said it about the Dodgers, but it, uh, it applies so the to the Braves, okay. too. No, you can, you know, yeah. Yeah. And you can apply it to others. You know, yeah. all right, message Mike Rizzo, build a bullpen. Okay, at least we ended on a high note. Hey, James, our guest is the Harley-riding, independent-minded, Civil War buff, United States Senator from Maine, the Honorable Angus King. Senator, we are so delighted to have you today. Uh, I, I, I wasn't planning to start with this, but I have to now after last night. What's your take on why the Democrats did so poorly? Well, you know, it's really hard. You guys know, you, you make your living analyzing elections. It's, it, it's, it's complicated. I mean, it has something to do with who the candidates are. I mean, some, some candidate, if you have a better candidate, 
often you're going to win. And people attribute national trends and say, well, the result in Virginia was something about Biden. Uh, you know, I have I, I'm here in Washington during the week and I saw a lot of ads. And I must say, uh, Terry McAuliffe's uh, gaffe in that debate where he said something about parents, you know, shouldn't be involved in their kids' education. That just played over and over and over. And my impression is that he, he lost in the suburbs where where Biden did well. Uh, and I suspect that was the that was part of the problem was, uh, you know, that that didn't play well with with uh, with suburban moms. Uh, I, I, but I'm you know, I, this is all very impressionistic. Uh, and, and I think partially uh, it was the fact that we don't seem to be able to get 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 on with it up here. Yeah. Uh, for example, if I, I believe that the infrastructure bill should have stood on its own. It should have been passed by the House, sent to the president. They would have had a celebration. The president would have gotten some credit. It's a hell of a good bill. And uh, I think it's going to make a lot of difference for the country. And instead, there's been all this bickering back and forth. And I think uh, people just have this impression that things aren't aren't getting done and, and it all falls back on the president. Well, were the, are the calculations any different after last night on passing that infrastructure and the social spending bill soon? You know, I haven't had any of discussions on that, but my impression is that, that something's going to happen soon. I mean, I've been saying that and hearing that for about two weeks, uh, but I think they made a deal uh, last night. I understand there's been a deal made on prescription drugs, which is an important part of the, of the reconciliation bill, and that, that's been a heavy negotiation. Uh, that's been one of the things that's been holding it up. But uh, the, 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 the thing that worries me, and you guys know about this process, the longer something hangs out there, the, longer, the, the more opportunity there is to pick it apart, uh, for people to come in and say, well, I don't like this and I don't like that, and this, this, this tax won't work. And, and uh, so you end up with, with something that uh, you know, gets, gets nibbled away, and, and that's what's worrying me now. Time is not the friend of complex uh, legislation, at least not too much time. I mean, this has been out there for 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 a couple of months now. So uh, I think that's that's the that that's the situation that I that I think is important. The other thing that's going on, and I, I suspect James will agree with me on this, you you got to be sure you're fighting today's battles. And right now, what I'm hearing about in Maine is gas prices and concern about inflation and not being able to get things delivered. Uh, and you know we call it supply chain, but but I I think that there's got to be some response to that. Uh, even though I mean you know presidents always get more blame than they deserve and more credit than they deserve for things like gas prices, but that's what's on people's mind right now. We're going to turn to James in just a minute, but let me ask you about one other subject that's dear to your heart. I know voting rights. Uh, the calendar's filling up. The Senate isn't going to end or really dramatically change the filibuster. But what are the chances for carving out an exception, as has been done numerous times, so there can be a vote on this Joe Manchin compromise voting rights measure uh, as Republican legislatures are passing voter suppression measures all around the country? Well, as you can imagine, I, I've been spending a great deal of time on this issue. I've already had one meeting today. I have another one in about an hour. Um, here's the problem, and, and this is a problem that the, the, the left doesn't want to really conjure with. And that is, once we make a change in the filibuster, whether it's a carve out or whatever you do, uh, it's forever. And it can be used against you. You know, for example, let's say we, we change the rule and say uh, filibuster doesn't apply 
to issues involving voting rights and the fundamental right of Americans to cast their ballots. Okay, so the Senate flips, and next year uh, Mitch McConnell says, well, you've made that uh, carve-out for voting rights, so we're going to pass a national uh, voter ID law or a national, you know, some, something else that would end up being overtly voter suppression. So you got to be careful. I understand that, Senator, but you can't get it passed uh, un- unless you have a carve-out, because Republicans aren't going to vote think, for it. I don't think a carve-out is the, is the right answer, Al. I think if, if there is an answer, it's to restore the Senate to what it was, you know, when you and I were, uh, were young men uh, following this process, <laughs> when you had to stand up and hold the floor. Right now... All you got to do is dial it in. People have this impression that a filibuster means, you know, talking all night. Absolutely not. One senator calls up and says, I'm going to filibuster that bill. And you got you to have 60 votes. We've we've converted the Senate to a de facto supermajority body because everything we're you know, we have to go through this process on on, you know, stuff that isn't even very controversial. Yeah. So I think one of the options is to revert to a system where you do have to hold the floor and that the burden is on those who want to block legislation rather than those who want to move it. In other words, instead of requiring 60 votes to move it, you require 41 votes to stop it, which means the 41 have to be there. Right now, if you're against something, you can just go home because an absence is the same as a vote. 60 is an absolute number. It's not a percentage of the body. It's an absolute number. And so uh, that's the kind of thing that we're talking about is how to how to make it look more like the Senate looked in the 60s and 70s when I I worked there in the 70s and it worked much better. And the filibuster wasn't used anything like what it's used uh, today. Nothing, nothing remotely like the way it's used. It's become, as I say, a de facto uh, 60 vote uh, threshold, which ironically, the framers explicitly rejected. You read Madison, I think it's 22 Twenty-second uh, Federalists, the fifty-eighth Federalists, seventy-fifth Federalists, Hamilton—they were death on a supermajority. They talked about how, in fact, it's kind of eerie to read it because they say it would allow a minority to basically paralyze the the uh, effectiveness of the government. Well, right. that's what's happened. James. Oh, okay, Senator. Uh, first of all, just my interpretation of the election, and it was universally bad. It wasn't just Terry in the schools. It was Governor Murphy in New Jersey. It was Long Island. It was. Buffalo. It was Minneapolis. It was even Seattle. And my own take on it is is, is that this woke language enforcement stuff is just turning people off at every level. And people don't want to address each other in, in, in that fearful kind of stilted language. And it just sends a, a, a terrible signal. I mean, who wants to take Abraham Lincoln? What a, you ought to introduce, my suggestion is, introduce a piece of legislation that says it, the name, likeness, or image of Abraham Lincoln cannot be taken off of, off of anything in the United States. <laughs> All right? And, and I mean, I'm serious. No, but you're absolutely right. And and part of it is, the, the you know, it's, uh, well, I saw I, I saw a, a quote in in the Virginia race where somebody said the biggest issue for me is critical race theory, but I don't really know what it is. <laughs> Neither do and, I. And uh, the same thing with uh, with with some of these, you know, defund the police. Those kinds of things are are incredibly damaging because they're they're simple, they're understandable, they're straightforward, and usually they're you know they're they're wrong. And and uh, I think that's. 
that's one of the. Uh, I, I think you're absolutely right that that you know the broad middle of the of the electorate, and that's what happened last night in these elect in these elections. Uh, are just they're not they're not ready for that kind of thing. They're not, and people just don't know. They know the way they can express themselves other than voting. And man, they did it in all across the country, and they did it in different races, and they did it, you know, in different parts of the country. And it was, you know, Al points out did well in a school board election in suburban Milwaukee, but for the most part, you know, Seattle might elect a, a, a Republican city attorney. And of course, the candidate said, I'm not a, really a Republican, but I, who came up with autonomous zones or defund the police? I mean, th there's nobody in Maine that you talk to that doesn't know what you're talking about. And well, I, they I, don't know what you're talking about, but they don't like it. They don't like it. Don't <laughs> they, don't, they don't like what they're this. hearing. And I've talked to school people, you know, public school people around the country are getting calls saying, do you teach critical race theory? And what? instead of going into a lengthy explanation, my advice is, Tell the truth. Say, no, we don't. I've never heard of critical race theory being taught anywhere, but maybe Harvard Law School, and I'm not sure it was even ever taught there. Uh, but it sure as hell not being taught in, in middle schools and elementary schools across America. So why not just say, no, we don't. That's not what we do. So the new president, I sure had dinner with him in his first black president of the Southeastern Conference, and he actually studies it. He's kind of a scholar part of that. And I said, exactly what is it, Dr. Tate? That was kind of complicated. Let me explain to you. You know, he gave me a... A three-minute explanation, and I was, I was scratching my head. <laughs> you know, it's something that they teach at a, a high-end law schools, all right? It, it, most people, including myself, kind of know the broad parameters of it, but that's not... I want to go back to one of your favorite subjects. And, and, you know, certain people just loom large in certain states. I Maybe Huey Long in Louisiana, Michael Jordan in North Carolina. I don't know of anybody... That whose legacy, whose shadow, is more dominant in a state than Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. I mean, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain in, in Maine has it just give us like two or three minutes because I know this is I know you're very much of a fan and, and very familiar. Tell people who might not know exactly who Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain is and why he loomed so heavy in Maine history. Well, Chamberlain was a, Chamberlain was an amazing guy. He he uh, was from a small town, self-educated, born in the eighteen late eighteen twenties, uh, and you know sort of homeschooled himself because there wasn't much in the way of high school in those days. He decided he wanted to go to a college in Maine called Bowdoin College. He taught himself Greek and Latin as a teenager. Memorized a Greek textbook. I mean, he, he was a brilliant guy, ended up, by the end of his life, spoke 10 languages. But he was, he, he was a college professor. But he had this deep and abiding thing about America and about the idea of America. So he, he wanted to join uh, the Army in, in 1862 uh, to, to join the, 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 Union, uh, the Union Army. And the funny thing is, he went to his college and said, will you give me a leave of absence to join the army and defend America? And they said, no, the, you know, you're a scholar, you're not a soldier, so no, permission denied. So then he went back a couple of weeks later and said, well, will you give me a leave of absence to go to Europe and study Romance languages? And they said, sure. And he got on his horse and went to Augusta and joined the United States <laughs> Army. That's, that's not taking no for an answer. Uh, and he he went to uh, went down uh, in the in the uh, 
uh, fall of, of, uh, of 1862 with the 20th Maine Regiment, a volunteer regiment. He was second in command of the regiment. They were held in, in reserve at Antietam, which, as you know, is the bloodiest day in American history. And then later, I'm condensing the story, but later he became colonel. He was the commander of the 20th Maine, and they, they were at Gettysburg. And they arrived at Gettysburg the morning of the second day, and uh, in the middle of the second day of the battle, Governor Warren, who was a Union general who also happened to be an engineer, noticed this little hill at the far left side of the Union line called Little Round Top and, and noticed that it was vacant and realized it was really very important real estate in terms of the, of the battle. And uh, he issued orders. I won't go into all the details. But anyway, Chamberlain ended up at the extreme left flank of the Union Army. Uh, on the second day of Gettysburg, on the top of this hill with uh, two other regiments. The, the strong Vincent, the New York officer who put him there, said, I place you here. This is the extreme left flank of the entire Union Army. You must hold this ground at all hazards. And then he said, let's see how a professor fights. And Chamberlain's men, at that time, there was a thousand men when they left Maine. By that time, they were down to like 240, uh, held off four or five uh, Confederate charges, 115th Alabama. And they held them because they were at the top of the hill and the Confederates were trying to come up the hill. But by the time of the fifth charge, they were out of ammunition. And there's a lot of historical debate about what happened next. But Chamberlain, after the war, said what he or what the word he said was bayonets, and that the men knew what that meant. And they fixed bayonets and, without ammunition, charged down the hill into the face of the of the of the Alabamans and routed them. And many historians believe that was the turning point of the Battle of Gettysburg and the turning point of the war. If the Confederates had gotten around the the, the, the flank of the Union Army, they could have, uh, you know, wrecked havoc on the, on the whole Union line, and the war could have ended. Now, you know, first Minnesota up the line also did a heroic uh, stand uh, that same afternoon, but uh, Chamberlain was this incredibly uh, principled, strong character man. He thought of himself as like a medieval knight. He was all about honor. And uh, one final story I'll tell you that really summarizes at the Battle of Petersburg, he was leading his men and turned to encourage them and was hit by a, a Confederate bullet in the hip. And it went right through his hip and, and through the lower part of his body. And just before he fainted, as he fell down, his last words were, tell mother I wasn't turning to run. <laughs> now, that tells you what was important to this guy. It was honor. And he, they gave him last rites, and they said, this wound is going to kill you. And it did, but it didn't kill him for 50 years. He died in 1914. He, he was later governor of Maine, president of Bowdoin College. Uh, and I can tell yeah. you a lot more stories about it. But character is what, is, is what comes through, is this indomitable perseverance and character and, and principle nature. Uh, he, he was, he's the greatest well, citizen man ever produced. I think General Grant thought rather highly of him because he had him, he had him accept to surrender the Confederate weapons at, at, at Appomattox. So everybody that was with him in, in 
the Union Army, he wanted Chamberlain to do that, which is a pretty good endorsement from a pretty fast soldier, U.S. Grant. <laughs> Absolutely. Particularly because he was a college professor, not a West Point graduate or a military man. But he also did something at the surrender at Appomattox. He ordered his men to salute the Confederates who were laying down their arms. And everybody was shocked. But he said he, he called it honor, uh, honor facing honor. Uh, and the General Gordon, the, the Confederate general, was so shocked, he, he saluted, uh, he t tipped his hat and his sword to, to Chamberlain, and the Southerners never forgot it. Uh, and so I've also encountered people in Maine who still haven't forgiven Chamberlain for recognizing <laughs> I, I, I just had to, because it's such a, a moving story, and I'm, I'm sure that somebody you know, that's listening to this podcast hadn't heard it, and if you're like me and you've heard it, 200 times. I always like hearing it 201 times, and nobody can tell it as well as you can, Senator King. It has that kind of yeah. depth of admiration. <laughs> uh, I know you, you you have a tough job, and I, I know in, in the caucus, but you know I think we got to just punch this thing over the line. I, I believe if we get this, I don't I don't buy that we doomed in 2022. I think we're a good chance this virus is going to continue to improve. I think there's a lot of pent up demand in this economy. I think there's some good proposals that are out there that can really positively affect people's lives, and I, I feel good. And and it, not just every Democrat, but every person that cares about this country should be grateful that we have somebody like you up there pitching in and, and trying to get this this ball in the end zone. So I appreciate it very much, sir. Number Thanks, number James. two behind Joshua Chamberlain. Senator, let me just try two more quick ones. Uh, one, on our program last year, Shane Harris, the Washington Post reporter on national security intelligence, said that while traditionally intelligence is shared with former presidents, there are serious concerns within that community that Donald Trump, perhaps unknowingly, might compromise some intelligence. You're a member of the Intelligence Committee. Does that worry you? Yes. Uh, you have to remember something about Donald Trump is that he came to the presidency with zero prior experience in any governmental organization whatsoever. Uh, planning board, town council, governor, legislature, Congress, no, nothing. I'm not saying that that's, that's a necessary prerequisite, but it, 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 he, he came in with a, sort of a blank slate on those things. And there were times in his presidency when he did, I think, inadvertently reveal classified information. Uh, uh, in the Oval Office, uh, not out of maliciousness, but out of just not, you know, realizing what the limitations were. And so I do think it's a problem. Again, not that he would necessarily use classified information knowingly, but I think he might unknowingly, you know, say, well, somebody told me that the Soviets have this capacity. What do you think? And all of a sudden, that's a secret that wasn't supposed to be uh, wasn't supposed to be discussed. And, and the problem, fellas, with, with revealing uh, intelligence is not necessarily the intelligence itself, but the compromise of how we got it. Uh, that if, if, you, if you say we know the disposition of the Russian troops in Moscow, the, the, the Russians can re-engineer that, and by the way, I don't know if we do or not, but the Russians could re-engineer that or ba back-engineer that statement to figure out how we learned that and compromise our sources and what they call sources and methods. That's one of the, that's one of the great dangers, and I think that's what the intelligence community might be worried okay. about. All right. Senator, I have one, one final thing. You, if you talk to Senator Mitchell often? 
I, I was just in touch with him over the weekend, as a matter of fact. He's, he's, he's one, one of my, my heroes. Real would heroes. you please tell him I, I, I remember him well and fondly when he was the majority leader would call me and grow me about the campaigns. I was always petrified of him, but I'm a huge admirer of Senator Mitchell's, and please give him my yeah. best. I, I absolutely will, and, and i got to tell you, it's pretty humbling, and I didn't really think too much about this when I was first running, to realize I'm I'm in the seat that was once held by Ed Muskie, George wow. Mitchell, and Olympia wow. Snow. I've got Muskie's desk in my office. I, I sit at Muskie's desk. Well, you desk. start with Joshua Chamberlain, and you go through that all-star team, and you end up with another all-star player, Angus King. I'd add Bill Cohen to that list, too. You're doing pretty... You're oh, doing absolutely. pretty darn well, Senator. And that was a wonderful Joshua Chamberlain story. And for all of you out there, if you haven't been to Gettysburg, everybody ought to go to Gettysburg and go to Little Round Top. That is really sacred ground. And you can just see so vividly what the Senator described. Thank you so much, Senator. Wonderful to be with both of you guys. Thanks for the conversation. And uh, we'll have to do it again sometime. We don't have to wait for Absolutely. an election. We would love that, though we, <laughs> though we, neither one of us are, are uh, adroit enough to join you in the Harley. But anyway. I, I, I know you're an independent, but I spoke to the Muskie Mitchell dinner, whatever it was in Maine, and that's one of the best times I've ever had in my life. <laughs> it was the kind of Democratic fundraiser. But they're really not. Terrific people. Like Portland is, is, I think the food in Portland is as good as almost anywhere in the country. Oh, listen, Maine's a, Maine's a great place. I've just talked to somebody today that's going to move up there as soon as they retire. I mean, it's it's a and now that we've got, you know, we're developing good right. broadband and connections. Uh, you can live anywhere. Why not live in a wonderful Senator, place? Do like you Maine? ever stay in? Do, do you ever uh, touch base with Tom, a guy named Tom Ricks up there? Tom Ricks was a great uh, uh, Pentagon reporter for the Washington Post. He's written more books about the military and the Marine Corps. And he, and he uh, about oh. five years ago, he said, I'm going to go up to Maine. He lives in Maine. I'll send you his, his address because you would love Tom Ricks. He's just an engaging I'm man. Glad, absolutely glad to. We've got, yeah, we've got a lot of, of you know, great people from all over the country that, that have come up. And interestingly, during the pandemic, a lot of people that have summer places in Maine right. came and stayed. Charlie Cook? Uh, just, Charlie you know, Cook spends all the time. Charlie Cook spends all the time. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. All right, yeah, Charlie. exactly. Hey, I know, I know you. You're busy. You got to run. You have deals to make, good deals to make, and votes to cast. But again, thank you so much, and we will do thank it again. You, sir. Get back. Uh -huh. Great, thanks, fellas. Good to be with you. See ya. All right, James, now for the questions and hopefully some good answers. Uh, we have a bunch from Virginia this week, no no surprise. This is from Mary in Hume, Virginia. I, I, you know, I'm a native. I was born in Virginia. I've never been to Hume. But uh, she says, while she admires our last week's guest, Liz Cheney, and what she's doing now, I have no problem with someone having conservative politics. But why do all those conservatives like Liz Cheney think government helping people is bad policy? Yeah, I, I, of course, I don't have any problem. I don't think Liz has any problem. But I, I do disagree with her on that, uh, for sure. And but having said that, what we have is a is a really criminal act, and and you know she's doing something that very few people in the party are willing to do, and she's willing to pursue it. So I'd be glad to say I, I, I profoundly disagree with a lot of her policy positions. I certainly disagree with a whole lot of her dad's policy 
positions, but on, on this one kind of huge issue, uh, she's been golden. Yeah, I think liberals sometimes make a mistake and they think, all right, if someone's good on something I really care about, they're going to be good in a lot of, a lot of stuff. Liz Cheney is a conservative Republican. It's the same with the late John McCain when he would be you know, with you on things like campaign finance and some other issues. People would say, yeah, but why is he so bad on taxes or health? Because he's a conservative. And we disagree with him on that. But you take people uh, who uh, stand up uh, when it counts, and boy, Liz Cheney is doing that. Yeah, I, I think whom Virginia is somewhere in, in that kind of horse country, not not is it Middleburg, but I, I think it's in that rough, roughly part of Virginia. Which I go, you know, I go out to my, my farm. It's a, it, you know, it's, it's like in Pocky County or one of those places. I don't think of you in horse country out there. Uh, no, James I don't. I, I drive yeah. through it on my way to the Shenandoah Valley, but I, I got to pass through it. Yeah, I don't, I don't see you out there. You know, you know, on a on a on a fox chase. Uh, no, I don't. See, I, don't I, I couldn't ride one of those one of those kind of saddles. I grew up in a kind of yeah. But you're probably a, a an avid polo player. I can see it now. Right, uh, right. Yeah, we I had to ride Dan a horse before I could ride a bike. <laughs> Daniel in. Uh, uh, Staffordshire, UK, says it seems too tedious and difficult to get the key global leaders to go to Glasgow for the COP26 climate change summit, including China and Russia. What more can Biden do? Listen, this is this is a real dilemma. They're making some progress, and I think that's to their credit over there this past week. But China is crucial here, and that's the dilemma. That's the difficulty of policy. China does a lot of bad things, and we ought to, you know, single them out for that. But you can't. I think John Kerry put it put it absolutely right this week you can't deal with global climate change and make real progress if china doesn't go along if china doesn't help you and that that's a delicate dance but that's just the reality yeah i i, I gotta tell you i i, I become a, a real pessimist on climate i mean i'm all for everything that we can do but uh, you know, and maybe technology and engineering and a lot of other things that we're able to do can help us live with this. But I, I don't see much hope that we'll stop this thing anytime in the immediate future. I really don't. It's not that we should try, but I, I am a I'm leaning toward being a climate pessimist. I got to be honest with you. I wish I didn't agree with you. I do. Uh um, Angela in, uh, in, in Paso Robles, California. Oh, that's great. She I, says, I know that country well. Where are the serious legislators? This is talking about Democrats. Uh, Republicans stand on the sideline and pay homage to the narcissist. I am gravely, the orange criminal as we call him, I am gravely concerned that a Trump v. Biden or Harris ticket may not be a winner a second time around. Is my only hope a criminal indictment? Uh, James, you take that, and I want to add something about legislators. Well, it, it, honestly, it's very hard to legislate with a 50-50 Senate or a three-vote House majority. And, you know, we think of us about all the great things that Franklin Roosevelt did, you know, or, or, or Lyndon Johnson or Bill Clinton or Barack Obama, but they had real majorities. And it's a little it, – it certainly – a valid observation to say the system is kind of stuck, but it, it's a little unfair to not acknowledge that we are in some really, really difficult uh, place here. I mean, uh, so that's just something that uh, we got to try to gut through. I think uh, I hope that the uh, progressive caucus uh, sees what happens. I hope they can read election returns. 
I hope they come back to the table. I hope they get this bipartisan infrastructure. That's a trillion dollars worth of infrastructure spending. I mean, that's nothing to sneeze at. And I hope we can get, I don't know, 1.6, 1.7 in additional spending and, and talk about what's in this and what's not in that. But as long as you're in a situation where one senator or four people in the Congress can can de-railroad anything you have, it, it, you got to have some sympathy for the people in charge. And the voters yeah. don't, but I do. Yeah, you do. Um, you know, there are very few. Uh, I've been covering this stuff, as you know, writing about it for a long yeah. time. There are very few better legislators than Nancy Pelosi. But uh, right. when you have a three-vote margin, uh, it means you, you you can only afford to lose three votes. That ain't that ain't easy. Probably the Democrats have, I think, more is that is that national image that you're talking about, James. And yeah, you look ahead to 2024, you can get you can get worried, but no, it's it's a it's a long way off. Um, yeah, I, I I I actually, if not overly 2022 pessimist, I'm certainly not an optimist. But if we understand what voters were trying to tell us and acknowledge it. You know, that there might be some good things that come our way. Yeah, I agree. Um, uh, next, we another Virginia. This is Doris in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Oh, home of James I don't know Madison. That uh, sure. She said, why do you think political polls have become so incorrect in recent years? Is it a problem with pollsters? The response being dishonest. First of all, Doris, the picture is more mixed. There clearly were some bad mistakes made in 2020. Certainly, they got New Jersey wrong this time. It showed Phil Murphy winning by between five and ten points. He's probably going to win by one or two. But pretty right on Virginia. I mean, the final poll showed uh, uh, Youngkin, you know, probably winning by about one to two. That's about what he won by. Uh, I think the problems in the past, and pollsters are thinking about this seriously, they undercounted. It wasn't so much they undercounted Trump voters, though they ended up Trump voters, low propensity voters. You know, they have all kinds of screens to come up with likely voters, and they miscalculated uh, a little bit in some states last time, not in all. Uh, and I, uh, so I, I, I don't quite buy this that their respondents who are Trumpites or right-wingers won't respond to polls. If they work hard enough, they get them. But they, you know, they have some problems, and I think they're dealing with them. Yeah, I think they have some New Jersey polls. I did some interview, and somebody, one of the hosts said that, you know, New Jersey was in the margin of error. I mean, I didn't challenge it when I was over. I said, New Jersey yeah, was in the poll. Yeah. yeah, you know, there's a, and, you know, what we know is these non-incumbents close furiously. Yeah, I think Virginia was about, somebody told me today it's going to end up a little closer than we thought on election night mm-hmm. in Virginia. You know, it's not, we're not going to win, but it's not going to be six points either. Uh, you know, it's only so so accurate it, it can be, and you're exactly right. Some of the places, the polling was actually uh, pretty good. And, uh, you know, in Virginia, it showed, the averages and internally, it, it showed that Yunkin was doing a little better toward the end, and that's usually a bad sign. I thought there were other things that could have worked with Terry, and I, but I, I, don't, I think Terry was... I think he was a victim of the times, not a, not anything wrong with his campaign or his candidacy. Well, and also, uh, I want to tell our questioner that every poll you read, every media poll at least, uh, would say that 95% of the time this is within three or this is within plus or minus three. Now, I think that's less of a range given the polarization in the country. But still, I don't, you know, any any poll that says it's going to be 48.4 to 47.5, I throw out. You can't fine-tune quite that much. 
And, uh, you know, I, I, I think by and large, Virginia was on the mark. And James is right. There was one uh, uh, New Jersey poll. I think showed three or four. It ended up even closer in that. But uh, most of them do a pretty good job. James, uh, we have the next. This is Tina in Sydney, Australia. Thank you. Oh, back down. to Sydney. All right. Yes. If Mitch McConnell sticks to his obstructionist guns and refuses to vote to raise the debt ceiling in early December, uh, should President Biden address the nation and explain to American people what raising the debt ceiling really means and what the refusal by Republicans to vote for it means? Call out the deeply cynical and unpatriotic. Pa- Is that viable, James? Well, first of all, they're going to extend the debt ceiling for a lot of reasons. But one is Mitch McConnell's corporate benefactors. And he is the most pro-corporate person maybe to ever serve in the United States Congress. You think they give some contributions? Yeah. Yeah. You think these guys are like the... Have you defaulted on the debt? No. I mean, he's going to posture and do everything else. But I I think Mitch McConnell is a, a, a... instrument and tool of corporate America, and corporate America knows what's going on here. Agreed. Graham in Greer, South Carolina, you've been to Greer, James, says Georgia and North Carolina are becoming increasingly purple. But here, as Virginia uh, is, despite uh, Tuesday's elections, but here in South Carolina, the progress is stagnant. What's the right message for Democrats in my state, Trump won Greenville by 18 percent. Greenville's a really, really changed happening place. Neighboring sure counties is, by over 25 percent. Is there any hope? Short term, I wouldn't be terribly optimistic about South Carolina. I think, you know, the focus ought to be on the other Carolina and, and Georgia. Uh, and uh, long term, you just hope one hope might be, James, that there are newer people coming to South Carolina all the time because of the stuff that's going on in Greenville. Uh, and maybe they will have a um, a less narrow view than some of the some of the others. But you're right. Uh, Greenville is one of the my favorite, more dynamic kind of mid-sized cities in America. It's a real hidden gem. It really uh, is. I, I I I thought we'd do better in 2020. Uh, I, I think South Carolina is you know it's tough, but it's not Tennessee. You know, and I I, I could see us doing. The, better in South Carolina, much more than I could see Tennessee or Kentucky or no, no, Alabama, pretty, pretty rugged. But but yes, I, I, you're right. It's not North Carolina. It's certainly not Virginia. It's not Georgia, but it's also not Tennessee. Yeah. Okay. So there's hope out there. Don't give up. Um, all right. Um, uh, James, uh, we have, a, uh, I think you'll like this final question. Uh, this is from Jennifer in Hillsdale, Virginia, undoubtedly reflecting the last couple of weeks. She said, in my town, I encounter a lot of, I didn't, I don't like Trump, but I liked his policies. He was so good for our economy. We need to have him back. Uh, I don't understand enough about economics to respond, especially explain why I think it's a myth and not a valid reason for those people who voted for Yunkin or anyone Trumpy. Help me. And also, she says, by the way, thanks for the discounts on Raycon and Magic Spoon. No, okay. So, so first of all, this economy is really good, and and you can take by any measure that you want. All right, the the one that our friend Roger Altman points to is the quit rate. Our workers have it so much better now than they ever had it under Trump. You 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 can't imagine. All right. Now, we don't talk about this enough. And when people say that they like Trump's policies, my answer is okay. 
I'm not going to argue with it, but, but if you're like me and you think that the two gut-wrenching, awful issues in, in American politics and world, in, in the politics of the entire Western world, are inequality and climate, he did everything possible to make both of those totally wrong. And the last two years of the Obama administration uh, created more jobs, had more growth than than the Trump administration, two years of the Trump administration. Uh, This economy is, you know, once if we get this virus liberated, we could see growth rates like like we we, we could never imagine. So uh, I I understand I hear that often, uh, and people say that. I think his policies were just awful, were just awful. And we made, we just made inequality so much worse in this country, and we got nothing in return. Yeah. We got nothing but stock buybacks. I mean, he inherited a good economy, so okay. And he was doing good, to, he totally botched the virus up. He was a totally disastrous president, and he had, in my opinion, not disastrous policies, disgusting policies. Yeah, and I would just say to to those out there who who like um, uh, like her or like Jennifer are getting that. Tell them to look at the data. Look at what joblessness did from 2014 to 2017. Then look at it 2017 2020. Look at GDP. Look at the seven Clinton years, uh, final uh, Clinton years. Uh, there was much greater economic growth, much lower, uh, much stronger de- decrease in joblessness. Uh, so uh, it's a myth that yeah. Trump created a great economy. Right, and, and he took yeah. over a pretty good economy. Yeah, yeah, right? he did. And he a, he was... kind of started on second base. He kind of ended on second base. I said but... third, but maybe second. <laughs> it was. Yeah, maybe. But you're right. I mean, it was really we had. Good. We, yeah, it was. It was a. You know, I don't go argue. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I mean, the point is, he he didn't advance to kind of runner at all. Right. Anyway, all right, Jennifer, I hope that helps, but keep those emails and, uh, and letters coming because we love the questions out there. It was heavy Virginia this week. Uh, next week, we'll see where it's from. It was nice to get Sydney, Australia back, James. Oh, yeah. Man, I've got, I'll, I'll love to hear from Sydney. I, I, that's a very cool place. They've had some really uneven times with the virus down there. They have. Yeah, but I also want to thank Jennifer for thanking us for the uh, for the Raycon and the Magic Spoon discounts. Everybody else out there, remember that Raycon and Magic Spoon. You can get your discounts from War Room. You know, when you're a go-getter, James, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. But it's even better when your breakfast choice is so good you can eat it all day. Any day, and that's why we love Magic Spoon. Zero grams of sugar, 13 four, uh, to 14 grams of protein, and only four grams of carbs in each serving. It's only 140 calories. As you know, my grandson adores Magic Spoon, and he's, he didn't have to convert me, but uh, he's so, he liked it so much that I'm, I try it, and you're right, it tastes good too. It's keto-friendly, it's gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb. You can even build your own box and customize it to make your Custom bundle with Magic Spoon's delicious cocoa, fruity, frosted peanut butter, blueberry, or cinnamon flavors. That's not all. I got some great news for you, Mr. Carville, and our audience. Magic Spoon is bringing back two super popular flavors, cookies and cream and maple waffle, permanently. So make sure you try them. Try them. They're delicious. 
indulgent and healthy. Right, James Carville? Well, I think you made to me, which is the key point, it's not just a breakfast food. And if you just keep some on the side in a bowl, as opposed to eating M&Ms, right, you pop these in your mouth, they're nutritious, they're nutritional powerhouse, they're not particularly caloric, and they're damn tasty. I like to... It's just a matter of preference. You got to give everybody something different. You know, I like the more fruit flavored ones better, but I, li- I like fruit with my cereal, and they combine both of them. Well, yeah, I'm a peanut butter guy, but Kai's with you. Uh, he loves the fruit kind. So you have great choices. And as I said, you can bundle your own box. So go to magicspoon.com slash warroom to grab a custom bundle of cereal and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code warroom. Check out to save $5 off your order. Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it, for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash warroom and use the code warroom to save 5 bucks off the price. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. Okay, now for the outrage of the week. James, there's so much darkness, so many outrages like Senators Hawley, Cotton, and Cruz, the three stooges of right-wing haters questioning the integrity of Attorney General Merrick Garland. But, you know, I'm going I'm to emulate you from last week, and I'm going to counter-program an upbeat note. Nick Kristoff is departing the New York Times uh, as a columnist. That's not the upbeat, but he's going to run for governor of Oregon. Now, I don't know Nick Kristoff, but I have marveled at his work for years. Unlike most of us columnists, he risks danger. He goes to places like Darfur and Syria to tell stories of inhumane suffering and of inspiring heroes. No one has exemplified the spirit of great journalism to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted better than Kristoff. Oregon is his home state, and while achieving global acclaim, he remained tethered to his roots. I'm not very current on Oregon politics, which once produced great governors like Tom McCall and Mark Hatfield, but I believe that that state would be very well served by Governor Kristoff. Well, all right, I, don't mind. I, I do know Nick Kristoff. I actually, I did Bill Maul with him uh, earlier this year, and he is as nice a guy in person as he appears to be. And I, I think that... I. I Generally, these things don't work that well. I think he's he's obviously a deeply thoughtful guy. Uh, he's really thoughtful about people that he grew up with and the challenges facing. You know, Oregon's got a huge rural population. They have, you know, we don't think of them. They have opioid issues. They got every kind of thing you can imagine. And I, 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 I think this Kristoff would be a great governor. I think he's a, a great humanitarian. And I think he's can understand politics in a certain level. I sure know he, he understands that state. So I, I will not be outraged and, and pick up your uh, observation about Nick Kristoff and second that with authoritative. Okay. We have a Carville Hunt podcast candidate in Oregon. James, All go right. ahead. That's it. I'm not outraged. I'm glad I'm outraged that, that these woke people, you know, took us down. Hopefully we'll get it back. Okay. I'm, uh, Terrific. And, yeah, I agree with you on that. We agree. Nick Kristoff for governor of Oregon. Okay, thank okay. you, James. Hey, 
Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check the link to our sponsor, Magic Spoon, in the show notes. We thank you for supporting them. When you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning.